It's the Memorial Day sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Sean Del Grand. And we've got over 800 brand new Mazdas with outstanding incentives, like low monthly lease payments and low APR financing. Yep, it's just a great time to buy. So don't miss the Memorial Day sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. Financing on approval of credit. He scores! Score! Score! The San Jose Sharks proudly present Sharks Hockey Digest. Here's your host, Dan Rusinowski. You know, there are a lot of great books to read about the sport of hockey, and there's a new one out from Triumph Books, all about the longtime owner of the Philadelphia Flyers, Ed Snyder. The title of the book is Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul. Here with us today is the author of that book, Alan Bass. Alan, welcome to the broadcast. And since we're recording this in the city of Philadelphia, I thought that we would take a minute to talk about your book, which outlines the history and the life of one of the more interesting sports personalities that the hockey world has seen. Why don't you fill us in? Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Um, Ed Snyder was the longtime chairman and uh, one of the founders of the Philadelphia Flyers back in the 60s when the NHL decided to expand uh, by doubling their size from 6 to 12. Uh, And he's really, to me, he was always a fascinating personality. Having grown up in the Philadelphia area, uh, he always kind of loomed larger than everybody else, larger than, you know, politicians and mayors of Philadelphia. And he was always kind of a step above everybody else. Uh, He was very, very well respected. And uh, as a young hockey fan, I always kind of wondered why, you know, my friends grew up uh, wanting to meet Eric Lindros and John LeClaire and Eric Desjardins. Uh, and I wanted to meet Ed Snyder. I, w- I was fascinated by how he got to where he was because I knew that unlike most sports owners nowadays, he didn't start rich. He didn't buy a team uh, kind of as a thing on the side. He used the flyers to generate his wealth uh, over the course of many decades. Uh, and so the story is uh, really looks looks at him through a bit of a business lens. Of course, there's plenty of hockey in it for everybody, um, but it looks at kind of his rise from uh, just some kid who grew up in Washington, D.C. and uh, had an opportunity to move to Philadelphia uh, to work for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, And then from there kind of took an an incredible chance, uh, an incredible risk as well, uh, mortgaging his life multiple times over to to pay for the Flyers fee to uh, to get them into the league and to kind of grow them from there, eventually building those Stanley Cup teams in the 70s. And and the book looks at uh, that that mind of his and kind of how he took just a fledgling hockey club in a city that really had, you know, mediocre hockey success over the years at the minor league level uh, and how he turned that into arguably one of the most successful expansion franchises in league history. Well, they were the first expansion franchise to win the Stanley cup after the league expanded from six teams to 12. And of course now to 32 teams. And that was sort of a portent of things to come, but I want to get into the psyche for a second of, of, of what Philadelphia felt about itself, because I think that that's an important part of the story. You know, for many years, everybody just sort of focused on Chuck Bednarik hitting Frank Gifford and, and beating the green Bay Packers in the 1960 NFL championship game. And that was really it for the city of Philadelphia in the NHL. You had the Philadelphia Quakers for a very short time in the 1930s, lost to the Depression. But uh, the city of Philadelphia, in a sense, was called by other cities the city of losers because they didn't ever win a championship at anything. And yet uh, this guy brought a team in 
uh, of a bunch of players from Canada, a sport not exactly natural to Philadelphia historically, even though people did play hockey uh, in the wintertime there, and brought a championship. And that's when two million people showed up for the Stanley Cup parade in downtown Philadelphia. Uh, is that a pretty accurate assessment? And, and is it uh, one of the reasons why perhaps uh, he and the team have been so beloved? Absolutely. And it's multiple parts of it. Of course, winning solves many, many problems in Philadelphia when you uh, run a sports team. Uh, but like you said, the, the psyche of the city really kind of matched Ed Snyder's viewpoint. You know, it's, it, you look at his personality as a as a younger person, and it almost looks like he was misplaced in Washington, D.C. He, he always seemed to be uh, like he, he should have been a Philadelphian right from the start. He had that mindset like Philadelphia does of an underdog. You know, look, you look at the Eagles Super Bowl run a few years back. No one likes us. We don't care. You know, Philadelphia doesn't care what anybody outside of the city thinks. They protect their own, they protect each other, and they will pretty much fight to the death for anyone that works hard for them. Uh, and Ed Snyder really, uh, he had that personality. He came in guns a blazing and, you know, anybody who said Philadelphia wouldn't succeed with hockey, you know, his attitude was, you know, get out of my way. I'm going to prove you wrong. In fact, he had a bet with Red Auerbach, uh, who owned the Boston Celtics at, at the time in the 60s. Uh, he was friendly with him through a business friend. And uh, he, Red bet him a dollar that Philly wouldn't work in Philadelphia, that hockey would not work in Philadelphia. Uh, and Ed's family still has that dollar to this day framed, signed by Red Auerbach uh, when he had to pay up. Uh, but you're right. You know, it, it was Ed Snyder's uh, passion. It was his desire to ensure that everybody took Philadelphia seriously. Uh, and if they didn't, then you better get out of the way. Uh, that mixed with two Stanley Cup wins in the 70s. I mean, what, what more can Philadelphia ask for? Also, the way he built the Flyers, as it turned out, was in the hard scrabble image of South Philly to a certain degree. And that happened after the St. Louis Blues pushed the Flyers around in the early years. And he said that that would never, ever happen again. And obviously that uh, that led to the Broad Street Bullies. Everybody forgets that that team was an unbelievably talented hockey club. Bobby Clark was a really tough player, but he was also extremely talented. Bill Barber, uh, an incredible scorer. And, and Reggie Leach, who started his career in many respects with the Cal California Golden Seals before he got over there ended up uh, being a, a big goal scorer too. So um, in a sense, uh, the type of team that he built doesn't, it didn't it fit the community as well. Absolutely. And, and, but the important part of that, like you said, is that there really was an incredible amount of talent on that team. You know, Broad Street Bullies was a great marketing ploy uh, and they were tough. Of course, you know, they, they did have to fight their way through a few games. They had three Hall of Fame players, they had a Hall of Fame coach, a Hall of Fame general manager, a Hall of Fame owner. Uh, they had incredible talent. Dave Schultz scored 20 goals one year. Uh, you know, that team could score and they could put pucks in the net, but it also helped that they could also scare you out of the building. There was that famous uh, Spectrum flu, whereas as the bus pulled into the Spectrum parking lot, a lot of opposing players suddenly didn't feel too good. Uh, and that was that culture that he established. He established that culture that we fight for ourselves, we fight for our teammates. We fight for our city. Uh, and that, you know, it's in the book too. That, that goes back to his childhood. He, he got bullied a lot as a kid, as a, as a young Jew in an anti-Semitic uh, area of Washington, D.C. He surrounded himself with uh, like-minded people who could protect each other. And he took that same mindset to everything he did in life, specifically when he built the Flyers. It's, you know, no one's going to push us around. We're going to get better. We're going to get more talented. But in the meantime, nobody's going to push us around. And in fact, with the current flyers right now, you, you see a little bit of that with how John Tortorella is building this team. 
you see that with, you know, we may not be the most talented team. We may not win a lot of games over the long run, but we're not going to be easy to play against. We're not going to let people push us around. And it's kind of a means to an end. You, you can't win by fighting, but you can certainly uh, build the culture of your organization, uh, build the culture of your roster, and really get people to understand that this isn't just going to be a cakewalk tonight. You're going to have to work your butts off. Well, it's, it's, it's the theory of standing up for your teammates and, and saying that some things in life are worth fighting for. It's not so much glorifying the, uh, the goonery or anything like that. At least that, that's, that's the way that it is these days. We're talking to Alan Bass, the author of Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul, the book that's just been released by Triumph. It's very interesting. I think some of the most interesting parts are uh, you chronicling the fact that Ed Snyder came from reasonably humble beginnings compared to most owners and that he actually built uh, his entire empire, for lack of a better word, around the fact that he could own the team. But that gets back to, I guess he was he was pushing records, among other things, to, to stores and he was doing reasonably well. But the opportunity came for the National Hockey League to expand. And of course, um, uh, you know, the the prices are a little bit different now than they were then. But he was actually able to assemble enough credit through mortgaging everything that he owned, through through getting a partner, through doing a variety of things that that got him the franchise. And in a sense, isn't that the American story? It really is. And that's where the phrase, the last sports mogul comes from. There are a, a good handful of people before him that started a sports franchise with very little to their name and then made a living off of it. But it's almost impossible to point to one who did it after Ed. You know, at this point, you know, the, having to pay nearly a billion dollars for an entry-level hockey franchise, nobody can own an NHL team unless they're already independently wealthy. You can't you can't mortgage your home and suddenly have uh, $650 million to your name. Uh, but that was something Ed was able to do at the time. The franchise fee was $2 million. Uh, and he, along with a couple of partners, they took out loans from friends. They took mortgages on their homes. They took second mortgages. Uh, you know, it, it was up until the last second, you know, the day that the check was due in Montreal, you had the representatives from Baltimore who were the first backup choice waiting with their check outside the boardroom, expecting to have a franchise by the end of the day, because everyone had heard about the financial troubles that the Philadelphia group was having. You know, at the last second, Ed was able to get that money wired up to Montreal amidst the blackout in the Northeast coast. And he was able to get that franchise secured for himself. But it was really like to the last second that he was able to get that team for Philadelphia. You're listening to Sharks Hockey Digest on the San Jose Sharks Audio Network. From the time that the NHL expanded from 6 to 12 teams, one of the more successful clubs was the Philadelphia Flyers. And the owner of the Flyers, who built his wealth through ownership of the franchise, Ed Snyder, is certainly a fascinating personality in the history of hockey. We're speaking with Alan Bass, the author of Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul. It's published by Triumph Books, and it's available wherever books are sold. I think an interesting part of the book, too, is the idea that uh, that Ed Snyder basically uh, had struggles through in his entire life, personal struggles. He was married several times. Um, he, you know, he had a, a situation where his son, Jay, was the president of the team. I remember uh, those years near the final years of the spectrum. Jay ended up leaving, and then uh, he ended up having to build a new building in the midst of all of the time when he, he thought that he was going to own the Philadelphia Eagles as well and had to decide that maybe he was making a decision emotionally for the first time of, in his life. Yeah, he, so he got brought into the Eagles back in the 60s to run the team 
by a friend of his named Jerry Wolman, who was a major developer um, and one of the most famous developers in the region, also based from Washington, D.C. back in the day. And uh, the two of them were very, very close. And, you know, basically Ed ran the Eagles while Jerry continued running his development empire. Uh, he was building this major project in Chicago, uh, the John Hancock Center. And, uh, you know, the, the, the very in-depth, uh, messy story is, of course, in the book, but in short, uh, there was a big problem in Chicago. Uh, Jerry lost a ton of money uh, and essentially it, it had to end up going into bankruptcy, selling the Eagles, selling the Spectrum. And it led to a very, very nasty breakup between the two of them. Uh, so Ed got fired from the Eagles on the Flyers opening night in 1967. In 1967. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a really heartbreaking story. You know, both sides will say it was the other's fault. But, you know, if you take a real unbiased look at it, it was just a terrible story. You know, nobody, nobody wants uh, a financial project to go downhill and to, and to see their entire fortune crash and burn. It was just a, a series of circumstances that really led the two to this messy breakup. And so when you get to Ed looking in the eighties to buy the Eagles, he was right there, you know, he could have pulled the trigger and then suddenly realized, I don't even like football. What am I doing here? You know, it's, and it's this really heart-wrenching story of someone who was just so, fervently fighting back against anybody that doubts him, including the collection of people that still to this day claim, you know, Ed, Ed didn't deserve the flyers. He just got lucky. He just, and whatever it is, it is, but there's so many stories like that in Ed's life uh, where, you know, he, he's fighting so hard tooth and nail. And sometimes he doesn't even realize that he's fighting for the wrong thing. Um, you look at when he's building the new arena, what's now the Wells Fargo center in the mid nineties, and again, for the second time in his life, he had to mortgage everything. He put basically every asset he owned, even as a, as a man worth hundreds of millions of dollars, every home he owned, every piece of art, his plane, everything he owned, except for his two Stanley Cup rings, which he refused to put on the banking documents. Um, he put it all up again in order to build Wells Fargo Center because he knew that Philadelphia needed that new building. Uh, it, you know, the spectrum was falling apart. And he was willing to put it all on the line for a second time. And it's one of the reasons that Philadelphia respected him so much. He, he knew that he was just a temporary steward of the Flyers. He always knew that they belonged to Philadelphia. There were rumors in the 90s he was going to consider moving them to Camden if he didn't get the terms he wanted from Philadelphia. And he said, nah, that, that's not happening. We're, he played the game, of course, but he said, we're not moving them from Philadelphia. This is Philadelphia's team. It's not my team. There's going to be someone here after I'm gone. Uh, and that's one of the reasons Philadelphia loved him so much. He, he was one of them and he fought for them, not for himself. What about the idea that uh, that he was so dedicated to this country and capitalism? And I know that he was an advocate of objectivism, which is Ayn Rand's philosophy of capitalism and uh, and of life uh, for life on this earth. Um, how did that uh, enter into his thinking? So that's a, that was one of the most fascinating parts of this uh, story to me in terms of the research, because I was lightly familiar with Ayn Rand and objectivism, but to be honest, I didn't really have a full understanding of it. And, you know, understanding Ed's devotion to her and her principles led me to delve deep into the topic and try to understand why it was that he felt so strongly about objectivism. Uh, and there's many viewpoints of what objectivism is. In his mind, what he found fascinating about it was that he felt that you know, the businessman should be left on his own. That means no help, no help from the government, no intervention from the government. But at the same time, he felt that it was his responsibility as a successful businessman to use that wealth to help others. 
Uh, so, you know, a lot of capitalism, or at least a lot of the view of capitalism, and sometimes it's correct based on the person you're talking about, is make as much money as you can, and, and then it's yours, and you get to do what you want with it. From his perspective, he thought it was the, the rich people's responsibility to give back, rather than the government supporting certain things, it was his responsibility. He supported members of his family for many years without anyone knowing. He gave so many millions of dollars to charities, not even counting the Ed Snyder Youth Hockey Foundation, which still exists to this day. Um, his family foundation to this day donates millions of dollars every year to causes they believe in. And he just fervently felt, agree or disagree with his politics, uh, he fervently felt that nobody had a right to give him give him money or take away money from him. But because of that, it was his responsibility to do good with that success that, that he attained. You're listening to Sharks Hockey Digest on the San Jose Sharks Audio Network. Alan Bass is the author of Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul. I'd like to delve briefly into how all of this ended because he moved to Central California later in life and everything changed. Yeah, it was such a such a sad story at the end because you know, in typical Ed Snyder's fashion, he didn't want anyone knowing what he was battling through. Not only did he uh, not want people, you know, calling how you doing, how are you feeling, but you know, he was a very proud man. He didn't want uh, he didn't want to be seen as this, you know, frail, weakening man uh, in his later years. You know, he had, he had cultivated this image of himself, and he wanted to make sure that stuck. Uh, but you you know, you talk to those that were very close with him, the people that were with him towards the end of his life as he got weaker and as he struggled to walk. Uh, and, you know, he, he lived out in Montecito. He was actually neighbors with Oprah for many years. And uh, he, he loved California. He loved California since the 80s when he met his second wife, Martha. Uh, and again, he, he donated money out there. He helped build uh, the, the, the rink out in Santa Barbara. Uh, he, he just loved the area so much. He loved California. It was, it was really his second home outside of Philadelphia. But in those later years, you see how you know, he wasn't physically able to fly to Philadelphia at the advice of his doctors, but all he wanted to do was go back to Philadelphia for one more game. You know, he never missed an opening flyers night. Uh, and then the year, the season he died, uh, he did miss opening night. And of course, everyone in Philadelphia knew something was wrong because Ed Snyder's not here on opening night. You know, you know, there's something going on. Uh, and the stories of the last few months of his life, as he's trying so hard to keep following his flyers, he's inviting people from across the country, you know, Bernie Perron, Bob Clark and Joe Watson fly out to sit and watch a Flyers game in his, in his theater with him so they can enjoy the old times. You know, he was very close friends with David Foster, the musician. You know, David comes over and, and plays the piano while Ed sits there in pain on the couch trying to enjoy his last few days. There's so many beautiful stories of friendship and perseverance uh, and, and these quotes from Ed about how he, he has to keep trying, he can't give up. Uh, and it's, it's really a tear-jerking final chapter to see what he went through and what he fought through to just try to see the Flyers make the playoffs one last time. Maybe he could be here for one more cup run. Um, and, you know, it's it, it's the personality. You never stop fighting. It's the personality of a Philadelphian. No matter what's going on, you keep going as long as you can. Well, of course, there were personal tragedies, too. Obviously, he married a couple of times. And, uh, you know, there was a time when, when his son, Jay, was running the Flyers, had to step aside. Uh, how did all that get resolved, by the way, with, with members of his family? So there was, there still is to this day, a lot of, uh, a lot of it was, was uh, kind of fixed up before the end of his life, but some of it wasn't, you know, he had a very, very large family um, and, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and nephews. I, th I think the count was 18 grandchildren when he passed. And 
Uh, he had six kids, uh, four of them with his first wife, two with his second. Uh, he had he was married four different times in his life. You know, a, a man with that kind of track record is always going to have personal issues. And there's a good piece of the book that talks about that. You know, that at the end of the uh, preface to the book, I say that, you know, Ed Snyder had good sides and bad sides. You know, the book doesn't portray him as an angel. It doesn't portray him as a devil. But what he does have is a lot of pieces of his life that we can learn about uh, and uh, and kind of take from him things that we do want to mimic and things that we don't want to mimic. Um, you know, you, you don't get to the top without a little bit of carnage, no matter who you are. And uh, he certainly had his fair share. He had fights with family members. He and his, his sister didn't talk for years. They only made up when, when their mother on her deathbed in a typical Jewish mother form, I have one myself, explained to them how disappointed he, that she was in them, that they weren't talking. And, you know, as, as she passed, they finally made up and were very close for the rest of their lives. You know, he had that with some of his kids too. There were years he didn't talk to some of his kids. And, and it's, it's really quite sad. And that's the part of the book where I say, look, we can learn from him about how not to behave. You know, he has so many good parts of his life, but it's important to look at those negative sides and say, you know what, that, that's not okay how he, how he acted there. I should make sure that, it, that you know, in my entrepreneurial uh, endeavors or, or just in my life, I need to make sure that, you know, family is the most important thing or those that are close to me and those that helped me on the way, I need to keep those people close to me and treat them properly. And he did for most of the people in his life, but it's those other stories and, and we all have them in our lives. It's those other stories that help uh, kind of color the full picture of Ed Snyder. This whole story reminds me of a movie from the 1950s called The Man in the Great Flannel Suit, starring Gregory Peck and Frederick March, where Frederick March plays a, a top executive, an Ed Snyder type. He's essentially somebody that's married to his business and has personal sacrifices that occur because of that. And he's trying to mentor this young man. You could put, potentially put Jay in that, in that position. And he, he said, you have to make a decision. You have to either live this life or you have to go home to your family. And of course, the Gregory Peck character chooses to go home to his family. And while Frederick Marsh was very disappointed with that, he understood and accepted that decision. It sounds that, that, that that's it just reminds me of that for some reason. Yeah. And one of the negatives of Ed was he was, I mean, his entrepreneurial spirit was so strong. It's one of the reasons that he was so successful, but at the same time, he missed a lot, you know, he missed, you know, kids sports games. He missed graduations. He missed, he missed a lot of things in his life because he had to be there for the flyers. He had to be there for his companies. You know, he, there was always something going on. He was never one to just sit around. Uh, even when he put Jay in charge of the team, you know, the idea was he was going to quote unquote retire out in California. Uh, but anyone who knew Ed knew that he couldn't stay away. And, you know, so he was always kind of looming large and that was part of his personality for better or for worse. You know, you can argue that that's the reason he was so successful in life, but it's also the reason that he ha had a lot of interpersonal problems in, in his relationships. Uh, and so, you know, it, it'll, it, like you said, it's, it's one of those things where each of us in our own situations looks at the, the, the choices we've made and decides what's our, what is, what is our priority? How do we balance all of those things in our lives? Uh, and that's why I think Ed's life has a lot to teach us. Alan Bass, you're the author of Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul. It is a fascinating book, and we thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dan Rusinowski. You've been listening to Sharks Hockey Digest. This has been a presentation of the San Jose Sharks Audio Network.